0: Someone brought me a cartoon yesterday. People bring me cartoons a lot because they know that I like them so much. And I uh, particularly like uh, cartoons of gurus sitting in a cave on a mountaintop and some spiritual aspirant having just climbed up there to usually say what's the meaning of life. Or so this is a uh, mountaintop and uh, two climbers who have just arrived at this top and uh, you see that they're standing at the very top, I'm sure you can't see it from, but anyway they're standing at the very top and uh, looking out over this incredible vista of uh, uh, high mountain peaks and the sun rising in the distance and one of them, is, but no guru, and uh, one is saying to the other, it's nice, but it's not quite what I was looking for. <laughs> so. <laughs> you, 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 you think to yourself, well, first of all, it's like the most blended top of the world picture in the whole world. What were they looking for? And uh, I, it, it's certainly reminiscent of the Guru on the Mountaintop uh, cartoons and that whole uh, question of what is it that we're looking for that we go up to the top of mountaintops to find gurus or to... That answer, what, what, what's the question that people are looking for, it's like jeopardy, that's the answer. Life is a river or it's this or it's that. What's the question? And sometimes I think the question is really simple. If we said it in uh, regular terms, like real speak, uh, I think it would be just something like turning to the person next to you and saying, how are you managing this life? I have a, a fa- I've been having this fantasy that I would put that out as a new worldwide communication, acceptable communication. If You find yourself on a plane or a train or a bus or a line in a supermarket, any place where you're going to be next to the person next to you for a minute or two at least, you could turn, all of a sudden you could say, excuse me, how are you managing to do your life? Because everybody has trouble doing it. But everybody who's next to you in a train or a plane or in the supermarket has done it up to then. They're still there. (laughs) And they might have an answer. This life is inevitably challenging how to do it. Really what we're looking for, if we want to say it in a fancy way, not how are you doing this life, it would be, um, do you have peace of mind, and if so, how did you get there? Because I think that's really what we're looking for. I don't know if we would say it as wisdom or knowledge. Uh, I think it takes wisdom to have peace of mind, but I think what we're really wanting is not something abstract like knowledge or wisdom, but really peace of mind, ease of heart, the sure heart's release. So this practice of mindfulness that we're doing, you know of course, is a practice that was taught in a very beautiful way by the Buddha and it's come down these 2,500 years. And I'm sure everybody here knows something about the life of the Buddha. Some people I know are new to practice, but I've been reading quite a lovely new book today um, by Houston Smith and Philip Novak called Buddhism. It's a concise introduction, and it's a very lovely rendition of the story of the Buddha, of His uh, birth as uh, Siddhartha Gautama into uh, a family, a noble family, probably his father, the head of a clan in northern India. His birth in 563 BCE, and uh, all the signs and portents that suggested that he was going to be a great leader, and his growing up in really a very protected environment parents wanted very much for him not to suffer the kinds of pains of uh, realizing the difficulties of life before he needed to. And then uh, marrying at 16 and having uh, a lovely wife and a child, and in his mid-twenties beginning to sense, as many of us do, that there is something problematic about being in a life. So the legend of how that happened there are several legends, one that he managed to escape from this very protected environment and saw in succession an old person and a sick person and a decaying corpse, and then the image of a monk, serene of mind, in the face of the truth of life, which, it's, it's, which is that it's arising and passing away, and that anything in which we are invested will be lost to us and will be separated from, and we will necessarily be separated from everything that's dear to us. Either he went out of his palace and saw that, or another story is that celestial beings on some other realm uh, manifested themselves so that he could see them. They manifested themselves in the form of an old person, a sick person, and a corpse, and a monk, so that he would understand that this is the dilemma of being in a life. That we will inevitably suffer from being separated from that which is dear to us and how to deal with it. How to stay in a life and be ease of, uh, have ease of mind, peace of mind, ease of heart about it. One way or another that question came up in his mind that we suffer so much in this life by wanting it to be other, he wanted to know the end of suffering and he left his protected environment went off and uh, studied in, uh, in two forest lineages with two teachers, the most renowned teachers in terms of mind training, and according to the story, achieved absolutely the same level of control over mind states that his teachers had. In, in fact, the story goes that they invited him as such a gifted student to stay on with, with them, each of them, and teach with them. And in each case, he said, this is not right because even though I have achieved these this tremendous uh, control over mind states, could stay in the most refined mind state, really unaware of the body, sit in the sun, in the heat, in cold days, in all kinds of weather, exist on very little food. He said, I have all this control over my mind and my body, but I have not yet discovered the cause of suffering and the end of suffering, and that's my mission, and he left. The story that I wanted to tell you comes at that point where he left and presumably his body was quite emaciated, and uh, as I read the account today, so frail that he was barely alive, and someone came and offered him some food. and. Uh, It was at that moment that he ate some food and felt somewhat nourished and felt clear in his conviction about what he was that he was meant to discover, and really it was not so much control over the mind and the body states, but really wisdom as to the causes and the end of suffering that he wanted, and that he really had needed to eat in order to arrive at that awareness and that determination to reach that clarity, that he said, I am clear about the middle path that really not to indulge the body but to treat it with respect, to treat it with enough respect so that it can do the work of arriving at wisdom. That was one understanding. And it said, and I want to read you the other one because it's written so beautifully, that that same experience of being brought back from apparently a nearly moribund state that led him to understand about the middle path. That experience also took his memory back to a day in his youth when having wandered deep into the countryside, he sat down quiet and alone beneath an apple tree. The exertions of a farmer plowing a distant field bespoke the eternity of labor necessary to wrest sustenance from the earth. The sun's slow, ceaseless passage Across the sky, betokened the countless creatures in the air, on the earth, under the ground, that would soon perish. As he reflected steadily on life's impermanence, his mind opened onto a new state of lucid equanimity. It was now calm and pliable, and the clarity of its seeing was marred by neither elation nor sorrow. It was his first deep meditation, not an otherworldly trance, but a clear and steady seeing of the way things are. And more, it was accomplished in the normal conditions of life without needing to subject the body to any kind of privation. I love that, that his mind in a place of ease, really looking out on a normal scene, understood deeply that this is the way the world is that endlessly sunrise, sunset, season, season, decade, decade, century, century, (laughs) the world turns, the seasons change, people plow, they get born, they die, animals get born and die, birds under the ground, in the ground, in the water, all turning in the cycle of living and dying, and himself a part of it as well. I think that it's, for me at least, so evocative of that moment of realization that one's own life, this body, is part of that arising and passing away cycle of form into emptiness and form again. All these bodies and all these lives around and around just like the apples on the apple tree year after year after year and people in cycles of generations and generations and generations and the sense that this is the way it is that gets understood in such a way that the way it is is does not bring up either elation nor sorrow it's just the way it is i loved reading that he went off after that experience and uh, arriving at the town of Bodh Gaya, near to Benares, he um, determined that he would sit down under the tree and stay there until he understood the causes and the end of suffering. And he did. He sat and he paid attention. All kinds of assaults um, tempted his mind, the kinds of things that tempt your mind away from paying attention, and my mind as well. Thoughts of interesting, wonderful, lustful things I could do that would be very satisfying. Thoughts of people that I maybe don't have such good feelings of, that I perceive as my enemy and have to guard against. All kinds of alarming sights filled his mind as it does ours, mine certainly, from time to time. And the story is that he put his hand down on the ground as if to say, I have a right to be here. And he sat, and his mind cleared, and through the night said he had a series of profound realizations that were his complete enlightenment experience, primary among them, at least this account listed as primary was his complete understanding of dependent origination, the cause and effect of every aspect of form in creation, that everything happens because something else has happened and gives birth to something else in an endless chain of arising and passing away, in a lawful way, so that things have lawful consequences. It's not a random cosmos it's a lawful one. I take a lot of uh, comfort from that, even when things are quite dreadful. I think to myself, these dreadful conditions, I've thought about it a lot in the world this last couple of years. I think these, these really troublesome and worrisome conditions in the world are not an accident. They happen because of certain conditions. The fact that they did makes me feel that there are other conditions that can change it. It's not haphazard. If the causes and conditions of the difficulty that the world is in now are ignorance in the form of greed and hatred and delusion, then wisdom in the form of non-greed and non-hatred and non-delusion will be the remedy for it. And there is an answer for it. And there could be a better world. It doesn't need to be this way. I take a lot of courage from that particular awareness that things are not random. That redemptive uh, freeing from worrying about borning and dying that one has when one realizes this is part of the flow of borning and dying that's happened forever and ever and will happen forever and ever. I think a lot about the moon. I have a lot of moon consciousness. Um, you know, we're on the waning side of this moon now. I always feel a little bad. I love the full moon, you know, and then when it starts to get a little bit slimmer on that side, I start to long for it to be full in a in a bizarre way because I really like it full, but I actually like it when it's the last sliver too, you know. And But then I have to wait through the whole mediocre moon to get to the <laughs> parts of the moon that I really find amazing. And I'm very happy that after all these years of watching moon, I still get excited about a little moon, a full moon. It seems to be so amazing that it does that. It's so beautiful. And last week there was that bite out of the moon that one night. Did you see the, the eclipse? And explaining it to my grandchildren about... How come there's, it's not an accident, that bite out of the moon, it has causes and conditions. And so it can't happen again right away, it has to happen, and we have to wait until those same conditions come back again. But there's something about watching the moon or watching the seasons. What we are doing here is training our capacity to watch carefully. Really that's what it is, training our capacity to pay attention. I really wanted to talk about this today because sometimes on the first day of a retreat when there's lots of talk about the instructions for the technical doing of this practice of mindfulness, it sounds like what we're trying to do is become very good at attending to the breath. And really we are, but in the service of becoming very good at attending to, at paying attention. Because really what we want to do is to be able to enter into those moments of seeing quite profoundly, as the Buddha did, that everything is quite impermanent, arising and passing away, being brought into form according to conditions, and disappearing also according to conditions, and that suffering is present when there's any amount of clinging in the mind to having anything other than the way it is right now imagine when I think to myself, this is really silly to be longing for the moon to be full. I mean, all the longing in the world, the moon will not be full until it's full again. But there's the yearning, because it was lovely when it was full. There's something very dear about the fact, I think, that we keep on yearning for a full moon when it can't be, or autumn leaves when they've fallen. Um, I actually find that one of the very poignant things about the human heart that even with a certain amount of wisdom about it can't be that way. We keep on longing. I think that's so dear of us to do that. I mean, it has something to do with our um, affinity for things beautiful and wondrous. I think about the fact that um, in the cycle of borning and dying. Um, I have a photo, of we have a photo of my husband's great-grandfather. That makes him, my grandson Collins and all my other grandchildren's great-great-great. I think three greats, maybe four greats, grandfather. I figured it out once that he has whatever it is, great-great-great or great-great-great-great, he has 32 of those great 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 Parents. When I look at that picture, it's a man in Russia with a big beard, doesn't look anything like Colin to me, uh, but Colin somewhere in him has, might have his genes circulating in there with the 32 other people at least at that level and everybody since then down. And I think to myself it's so odd how we recreate, it's odd and wondrous. How we recreate like cherry trees and like apple trees. New generations carrying genes, carrying who knows how, what other packages our karma comes in. There's a kind of a wonder about the cycling of life that I think that the Buddha tapped into in that moment that he sat under the apple tree that unhooks the fixation from the mind from its fixation that this life has to be permanent and eternal and special and separate and allows it to enter into the awareness that it's not, there's nothing about it that's separate and permanent and eternal. That it's part of that flow of living and dying. And that not only does it realize that, but it loses its separateness with a sense of liberation and a sense of joy. Wow, think of that. I am part of that whole cosmic unfolding and i only thought i was a separate me not much to think about actually but that is a big cosmic unfolding it's an amazing show i think to myself when we get caught in the habits of mind that trap us in our own personal world we get to be we get to miss the show we get to miss the enormity of that There's a lovely uh, roomie that I looked for this afternoon so I could read it to you. Don't run around in this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat's claws will find you. The only real rest comes when you're alone with God. Live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. That's why you see things in two ways. Sometimes you look at a person and you see a cynical snake. Someone else sees a joyful lover and you're both right. Everyone is half and half like the black and white ox. Joseph looked ugly to his brothers and most handsome to his father. You have eyes that see from nowhere and eyes that judge distances how high and how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free-swimming fish. That's really what we are trying to do here. Trying to see the trap of separateness. See out of it. See the trap of ownership this is me and mine, I had that thought, I had that feeling. Thoughts arise, somewhat like a popcorn machine, not, not in any order that we plan, not because we plan to think them, just popping up all over the place, in the same way that body sensations arise, just like that. We sit here, don't mean for the back to suddenly spasm or for heat to suddenly arise, it just does its thing. And here we notice it. And because the the faculty of awareness is present, we tend to make the uh, era of vision of thinking that since a sight arose there was someone who saw it and a sound happened, that there was someone who heard it. Or a thought arose and there was someone who thought it. And what if sensations arise? Thoughts arise. They don't belong to anybody. They certainly come along with this body that appeared in time and space as the result of conditions, lawful, would disappear from time and space at another time. But suppose there's no one here in any of us. We become the free-swimming fish. We take good care of it, we care about it, We care about other formations and bodies. We even talk about them as you and I, but we live in a more light way with each other. That's what I want to do. The Buddha when he had his understanding went around and told lots of people what he understood and lots of people got it. I love those stories. It says, and he taught to this and that many people, a hundred people, five hundred people, and masses of people spontaneously got enlightened. The end of those uh, stories will will say something like, and um, in the eyes of a hundred people, behind the eyes of a hundred people arose a, spot, a spotlet, spotless immaculate vision of Dhamma, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. X many people, Y many people, Just by listening to him they so got it that they never again made the mistake of identifying with their experience and thinking there was an owner of it. They never again forgot that everything is impermanent and passing away. They never again forgot that any kind of clinging in the mind, any kind of need, personal incessant clinging, craving to have it some way that it isn't, is suffering and that surrender is freedom. Never again happened to them that they made that mistake. I love those stories because I think someday it might happen to me, that there's a precedent. I always listen to my friends very carefully because I never know. Someone sent me a note and said, is there an instruction for listening to Dharma talks? Yes, that's the instruction. Expect that it's going to happen to you. Why not? It could. And I have this—I uh, have a fantasy—that uh, the Buddha, after teaching all here and there and there and here, many many people waking up. Lots of people apparently didn't get it right away. And although most of the story, most of the text of the Pali Canon, are not instructions; they're just stories. He went here. He went there. He said this. He said that. There are two teaching sermons. One of them is the instructions for mindfulness and the other are the instructions for metta. And my fantasy about the mindfulness sermon is completely midrash, I don't know that this is true, I made it up, that he thought to himself, a lot of people aren't getting it, so I think I have to break it down a little bit more carefully and prepare it for the people who, so that the people who don't see it right away, just by paying attention, we will pay attention in smaller increments. So I will tell people, rather than say, just pay attention, it's clear, watch the moon, life comes and goes, that's the way it is. Okay, we're going to break it down, we're going to say, watch the body. You'll see how sensations arise and pass away, breath arises and passes away. We'll feel everything about the body, and we'll know that there's nothing about it that doesn't arise and pass away. Sleepiness arises and passes away, hunger arises and passes away. Paying attention to what's happening in order to see that what's true about what's happening is it's all arising and passing away, arising and passing away. It's not important to chronicle how many times a day you are hungry, or how many times this, or how many times that, or how many good (coughs) moods, or how many depressed moods, or how many squiggles of twitches in the shoulders but that things happened and then they didn't happen. Really we're looking to see, looking at what's happening to see what's true about what's happening. Because everything that's true about, what's true about what happens is it all passes away. It's all conditioned and interdependent. And suffering is always the result of clinging. That's what's true. And it's clear, to, it's possible to see that in a macro way in the world. The Buddha saw it as he sat under the field and heard the farmer plowing. We can watch it in the moon, we can see it in the days go by. can see it in a micro way inside our awareness as we sit here, as we walk, as we meet every moment with balanced attention, recognizing it clearly for what it is. The word for mindfulness in uh, both we call this practice, Vipassana practice, the translation of the word Vipassana, the Pali word Vipassana, is seeing clearly. Um, I I actually think of it uh, uh, not so much as seeing clearly. Seeing clearly is fine. Seeing profoundly what's true. You look at the moon, you see that's the moon. You look at the moon and you think that's the moon on its way to disappearing. That's really if you looked at the moon and looked at it today, looked at it tomorrow and looked at it tomorrow, it's a demonstration of disappearing. I could have the same demonstration of arising and passing away with every breath. It arises and passes away. Every thought arises and passes away. If I had any illusion about my thoughts being substantial, or it's surely happened to you that uh, you're in that the, the mind fills with thoughts, some very complicated thoughts, and they're really elaborate. They're going on and on, and then something happens. The person next to you coughs loud, and you really and you get startled by it. So you're startled out of the thought fugue, and maybe you think a few uh, auxiliary thoughts like whoa, I could catch a cold here. And that that person, I hope they covered their mouth while they coughed. I wonder if I caught a cold, it would really wreck up my retreat. Okay, now, what was the thought I had? And it's all gone. (laughs) The whole elaborate thought filled up the whole mind. Because it was a bubble, and it it just goes away. So the, the emptiness of things is visible in every aspect of our experience. So here was the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness he said, if you don't get it immediately, this is my take. He didn't say this is my... Not getting it immediately, let's look a little more closely. Let's look in the body. Look at the body. Let's look at the um, quality of every moment of experience. Every moment of experience arises with a certain feeling tone about it. it ha- it's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Think about it, isn't that true? that something happens and it, it, we don't actually register it when it's not strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant. With okay, this is okay, this is okay. Ah, oh, I don't like this. Or, oh, I do like this. And it's really important to watch the, the movement of the mind, I really like this, in uh, beginning to grasp at the, I really like this. Begin to see the habit of the mind unguarded to meet pleasant experiences with a certain tension of grasping. This is pleasant and I'd like more of it. That's by the definition, by the way, of mindfulness really always includes the word the balanced recognition, the balanced non-reactive recognition of what's happening. That the balanced part keeps it steady and it says, oh, this is arising. This is pleasant. Balanced can know pleasant. It can even know, whoa, this is really a little bit of uh, lust beginning to arise in the form of, I wish this pleasantness would stay. But having noticed it, I don't have to give any energy to it, I see it, and it stays balanced. Things that get seen and named preserve the balance. It is the seeing that keeps the balance. The balanced, non-reactive doesn't need something. I like to think that mindfulness doesn't covet. It's free of covetousness, it's free of aversion, it doesn't push away, it even can know this is an unpleasant experience that's arising. can know I don't like it. It can even know I'd be happy if this weren't here and still not fight with it. Somebody was surprised this afternoon in one of the group interviews uh, talking about, uh, I guess the conversation had been partly about opening to experience and um, uh, the general understanding that we have mindfulness being, as being able to be with experience as it arises, not denying it, not pretending it's not there. I think that that, that includes being able to know how you feel about it. Because it, it, it had come up, I had said something about it would be all right in the moment of awareness of what was unpleasant Say, to uh, have a plan about a skillful response in the next moment. I could put my attention on something else. I could put my attention back onto my breath, which is a neutral and calming experience, which is not running away from the difficult experience, it's not in denial about the difficult experience, it's not pushing it away. Sometimes I think it's possible to hear that understanding, open and receptive to all experience, as meaning that there's nothing that's responsive to experience, that experience just rolls over us and that we are the hapless victims of every mood and every mind state and every thought that arises and the only thing we do is make a space for it. I think we make a space for it, we hold the balance for it and a skillful uh, continuing the balance, mindful response happens which might be now with full mindfulness I put my attention here. Preserving the clarity. The importance of non-reactiveness in the mind is uh, first of all because reactiveness in the mind, its very self, is suffering one way or the other. And the other thing with reactiveness in the mind is it clouds the mind. And if the purpose of seeing is to see truly what's true, really enter into those insights deeply, then the cloudiness makes that impossible. So preserving the mindfulness, which depends on preserving non-reactivity, is still in the service of seeing clearly. I like that so much because it's not about denying our humanity. I I, I guess this had come about this afternoon because I said about... um, Somebody had said... uh, I guess if I could open to my pain, I'd be okay. It wouldn't hurt. And I said, you know, it's very hard to open to pain. I can remember um, any number of times when I was struggling with a mind state or a body state, really tied in a knot about it and a lot of pain. And at least I remember the first time I, I said to myself, you know, I'm struggling with this. If I could stop struggling, I'd be free. Who knows, maybe it would even go away. So, I said to myself in my mind, inside but in a loud way, I am open to this pain. And I heard a voice in my own mind, my own voice of course, another aspect of it, said, who are you kidding? (laughs) Because the truth is it's completely counterintuitive to open yourself to pain. The truth is that we don't give up being human beings just because we get to be attentive. I mean the, the natural inclination of the human heart is to respond to pain including our own. So I am not open to, you know, I, I'll have to be open to it because what's my choice? But that does not preclude hoping that it will end even sooner and really spurring my, me on to carefully and mindfully preserving the balance. Think of something skillful to do In the next moment, in the service of my own pain, on behalf of all beings, I now bring my attention back to my breath, and the next breath, and the next breath, which will probably calm my mind, allow me to hold this pain more comfortably. Actually, as the body and the mind calm down, the pain threshold goes off, actually. Pain threshold in the mind and the body. Body seems to get looser, and the mind seems to get more spacious, and everything seems to fit. I brought my three teas with me. I've been carrying them around as props for teaching. They have a tea called Awake and one called Calm. And uh, I, I, I've been saying I wish it was as easy as drinking a, a tea. Um, but the thing to say about mindfulness and the building of mindfulness that we are particularly beginning today and tomorrow by encouraging you to stay with a very simple routine and as much as you can, just the breath and the body and um, the movement of the steps. Throughout the week we'll continue to enlarge the instructions. Very important for us to say as many times as we can that the breath is not what it's about, it's about attention. And in these first few days, We're really going to talk about the body and the breath and the walking. Because they're so plain and they're so ordinary, and because of their plainness and their ordinariness, they tend in the direction of calming the mind. They're the same thing. They're repetitive. They're simple. To whatever degree you can, stay with them really. And everybody says, my thoughts are way more interesting than my breath. Well, sometimes in fact the breath gets tremendously interesting. But the truth is, in the beginning, it's not that compelling. (laughs) But to the degree that you can bring your attention back to it and back to it and back to it, what happens quite soon is not even necessarily that the breath gets fantastically interesting. It gets more interesting actually. But that your body gets much calmer, mind gets a little bit more spacious, you get happier. And then it becomes really worth it to do that and easier to stay there. It's actually training the mind in coming back. I think of that as a, it's really a training in returning more than a training in staying. So that if, if, if you have the sense that a thousand times in a, in a sitting you bring your attention back to the breath, that's great because it actually means that you get a thousand repetitions. It's like playing scales, that you played those scales a thousand times. There's a way back home and you practice it a thousand times, all the better. Because really, in our life, we're not going to stay fixed on the breath. We're going to try to stay as much as we can at home, in the present, seeing clearly, not clouded by greed, hatred, and delusion. So that as we do our lives, we make decisions skillfully for the benefit of ourselves in our lives, for the benefit of all beings. That's what this practice is for. The combination why I brought the T's of calm and awake is that this is really a dual practice in the lexicon of um, meditation practices. It builds on concentration for the first couple of days with a very simple focus, and then brings in all the other aspects of awareness, really the, the, the quality of the moment, pleasant-unpleasant-neutral the changing display of uh, rising and passing away of different states of mind, different moods, different emotional states, the coming and going of thoughts, and in fact the coming and going of insights and whole thoughts and understandings. So really the realm of the domain of mindfulness is the whole of physical mental experience. And we start with this teeny piece of it in order to cultivate the steadiness that's required to support that whole, the clarity in the whole of it. Really to think of support, building that non-reactivity, because that's what that calm will principally do. There are practices, by the way, that are really just awareness practices, where the intention is just wake up. I love it that this practice builds this foundation of uh, steadiness. Kind of tranquility, calm, firm foundation, so that from that place of a, of a built sense of steadiness, we're able to really look around and see what's out there and really be present to whatever arrives in the mind in form of memories or um, stories of our current lives, which recycle all the time. It's really uh, always... Uh, it's always something to teach this in the form that we do. Because we, be, we sometimes talk on the first day as if there's nothing but breath and body, and then a couple of days from now we'll say, now we'll pay attention to the sensations in the body, pains and aches. Everybody paid attention to them already. They already arose. And on the fourth or the fifth day when we begin to talk about thoughts, it's not as if anybody hasn't had a thought and all this time that I mean, thinking has been happening. And everybody's been paying attention to them. But we really teach it in this way partly because we were thought this way. Partly for me, I do it because I think it builds such a good foundation of steadiness and really supports the mind in its ability to hold everything else as it begins to be p- included in the domain of mindfulness. I actually have three T's. I have calm, and I have awake, and the third one is passion. <laughs> because there's a there's a way of um, sometimes understanding non-reactivity as uh, without passion, and I think so much about. Uh, the passionate wish that we all have to be free, to really experience peace of mind, the passionate wish that we have uh, to end the suffering in the world, for sure the gratuitous functioning uh, suffering, the gratuitous suffering that people do and wreak on each other, all because of greed and hatred and delusion. I think we feel a tremendous passion for that. It's not all the same. I think that's really what really is our own good heart, I think, that motivates our determination and practice. I know, Sometimes we talk about practicing on behalf of all beings. And I think it's not, at least for myself, I came to practice because I was uncomfortable and I really wasn't thinking about all beings. And I think it's true that I, I remain my primary interest. I care enormously about the people I love. I think we, each of us, feel the world through our own being. And we want so much to be peaceful. And watch as I become more clear about suffering and the endless ways in which the mind contrives to catch me and not. There's no end, I think, to seeing through some habit of the mind, actually maybe having it loosen a little bit, just to discover another habit of mind that does that same thing. There's a way in which sometimes I think, oh dear, uh, one thinks of a spiritual search or a spiritual journey as having an end. And the Buddhas presumably had an end. Uh, he woke up, he said, the uh, house builder, that, uh, meaning the, the, the whatever it is that builds the sense of an ego in us, the ridgepole is broken, declaring his never again falling into the sense, uh, the sense of a specious self that creates distance, makes separation, creates fear leads to suffering. He was completely free. I think of this as a lifelong project for me, but I feel quite passionate about doing it. And in fact, it's the very seeing of how suffering is really the fabric of experience that actually fires up my passion, because I know that my experience is just like everybody else's. We're so incredibly dear. We're all of us caught in knots all the time, dealing with all kinds of distress all the time, and we all of us get up in the morning and mostly behave kindly. It's incredibly heroic of us to be doing that. I think it's that kind of understanding that really keeps us all doing this on behalf of each other. It's not because we heard it and it sounded noble, it's because we feel it in ourselves. I think we end up very much wanting to be part of the ongoing miraculous unfolding on behalf of each other. I'm going to read to, to finish, I'll uh, read you a, a Rumi that I just found this week. called the chickpea to cook. A chickpea leaps almost over the rim of the pot where it's being boiled. Why are you doing this to me? The cook knocks him down with a label. Don't you try to jump out. You think I'm torturing you. I'm giving you flavor so that you can mix with spices and rice and be a lovely vitality of a human being. Remember when you drank rain in the garden? That was for this. Grace first, sexual pleasure, then a new boiling life begins, and the friend has something good to eat. Eventually the chickpea will say to the cook, boil me some more. Hit me with a skimming spoon. I can't do this by myself. I'm like an elephant that dreams of gardens back in Hindustan and doesn't pay attention to his driver. You're my cook, my driver, my way into existence. I love your cooking. McCook says, I was once like you, fresh from the ground. Then I boiled in time, I boiled in the body, two fierce boilings. My animal soul grew powerful. I controlled it with practices and boiled some more and boiled once beyond that and became your teacher. I look out often at groups of people sitting, and I've I've imagined this for years that we each of us are like a great cooking pot and we sit there and everybody sits quietly it's like 80 cooking pots on a stove boiling away. Everybody is cooking their own soup in exactly their unique way with their own flavor. I imagine the lids bubbling Everybody is in the whole world. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstyn at Spirit Rock on May 19, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.